First Timothy chapter 3, and uh, this is a passage that talks about qualifications for elders and deacons. Uh, just a note, uh, the English translation says overseer, but overseer is another way of saying elder or um, uh, another way of saying pastor as well. Uh, in my theological tradition, it's kind of elder and pastor are like uh, the same thing. This is God's word. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now we're on to deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Is God's word. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we pray not only that you would instruct us, but that you would, uh, you know, I guess ultimately stir up within us a greater heart for uh, Jesus and that through that we would have a greater love for his church. And as we just kind of read these instructions, um, you know, maybe sometimes not the most exciting uh, things to, to hear about, but nevertheless, um, incredibly important and incredibly um, reflective of how much you care for your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as I said for uh, those visiting, uh, last week we had a congregational meeting and uh, this is a season where we announced we're going to take some nominations for members to serve on the church council as an elder or a deacon. And we belong to a denomination called the Christian Reformed Church. And in the Christian Reformed Church, elders or deacons, uh, they have term services. So uh, elders and deacons serve typically like two or three year terms. And so because of that, last week we transitioned off uh, one elder and um, I believe four deacons. One, two, three, is it four deacons? Um, and we're, we're looking for uh, some new council members to serve on the church council. Uh, that's one, one lane. Second lane. We have been preaching through the book of Acts, and we're in a section where we're following Paul's ministry, and Pastor Fred had the idea that this summer, uh, instead of going through Paul's ministry in narrative form through the book of Acts, he thought it would be a good idea if we actually look at some of Paul's letters, and uh, some of the letters that he sent to these various churches and uh, kind of get like a ground level view of maybe some of the things that were happening in his ministry context. And so to address uh, both of these lanes, I thought what we could do is we can look at one of Paul's letters to Timothy and we could look at a section where Paul talks to gives Timothy some instructions about the qualifications for elders and deacons in the church. 
if you recall, I think this was uh, back in May, uh, we did look at a passage where we talked about Timothy. Timothy is a close companion of Paul, and Paul considers him like a spiritual son, and Paul himself would consider himself a spiritual father to Timothy, but not biological. So Timothy's biological father, he was Greek, his mother was Jewish, which meant Timothy was a child of a mixed marriage. And when we looked at Acts chapter 16 a while back, we saw that God gave Timothy to Paul at the exact right time and used Timothy and his apparent weakness of being uh, a child of a mixed marriage as a point of strength for gospel ministry. So as Paul was going to the Gentiles to reach the Gentiles, uh, Timothy, who was not circumcised at that time, Paul asked him to get circumcised, um, I guess for his uh, Jewish part, and it kind of opens a lot of doors, and Timothy is like that in-between kind of person who can be a bridge to all kinds of people. Now, one of the nice things when you look at Paul's letters, rather than maybe the, some of the bigger story sections of the book of Acts, is you, you begin to kind of sense some of the personal connections that are there. So in Paul's letters, you can really see how much affection that he has for Timothy and how much he really trusted him. Paul's final letter that was written before he died in prison is Second Timothy, and in Second Timothy, uh, what Paul says is like, oh man, everybody has basically deserted me, but Timothy is, is the loyal one. And he says to, to Timothy, hey, can you bring me a cloak? Can you bring me some of my books uh, in my final days? And so based on that, you can really see the kind of close-knit relationship Paul has with Timothy. Also, Philippians 2, Paul says this of Timothy. He says, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. And so again, this is somebody that Paul trusts. He looks at Timothy and he says, this is not a person for their own self-interest or their own self-gain. He has been with me in gospel ministry, and I, I trust him. He has proven his worth. And so you can, again, see how important this relationship was. In First Timothy, Paul writes to him, and he gives a, a good amount of instructions for the health of the church. And he talks about, in chapter 1, the importance of good doctrine. Then he gives instructions on public worship in chapter 2. And now we are on chapter 3. And in this chapter, what he talks about is the oversight of the church and the qualifications of who should serve in uh, these offices. And so today, what I want to do, um, I want to make some general comments and reflections and maybe a few comments uh, on some of the particulars of these qualifications. Uh, it, you'll notice like this summer, Pastor Fred has been doing a lot of the preaching. Um, he wanted to, I guess, kind of experience what it's like to preach week after week. And, uh, you know, he has a summer off because he's a teacher. Um, and it's been really good for me to sit and to hear somebody else preach. And I've noticed he's like very engaging and very good at telling stories, <laughs> which uh, I am not. So uh, that trend will continue today. Uh, but hopefully this will be uh, instructive. <laughs> uh, I, I love hearing Fred, uh, Pastor Fred preach. Anyway, uh, okay, first, a uh, very simple point. Being an elder or a deacon is good. Whoa, I know, right? Whoa. <laughs> now, it seems like uh, that point is too simple, and it's not worthy of being a, uh, a point, but I think it's really worth pointing out because, you know, in verse 1, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
And by the way, the English translation, as I said before, for overseer, uh, think about it synonymously or interchangeable as like pastor or elder. And Paul says, you know, this is an office that uh, we should all aspire to at the very least because it's a noble task. Uh, We all have different kinds of aspirations. Uh, Some of us, we want to aspire to be successful in our career. Some of us, we want to aspire to uh, raising our children well. We all have these different aspirations, and I might be wrong, but if I were to guess, my guess is that most people in our context probably would not aspire to be uh, in this office of pastor or elder. And I think it's worth reflecting on why that might be. Uh, I would say there are uh, certain cultures and certain contexts where being a pastor or elder is actually an aspiration because there's a lot of honor attached to that office. Um, I grew up in a Korean, uh, an immigrant Korean church context, and uh, if any of you have grown up in that context or a, maybe a similar context, uh, you probably know that within that culture, there is a lot of honor attached to this office, to whether uh, you're a pastor or an elder. Um, <clears throat> you know, when I went to seminary, uh, I think a lot of people would say to my parents, like, oh, you must be so happy that your son uh, went to seminary and is going to serve God as a pastor. And unfortunately, they didn't realize, my parents didn't share their perspective, and they didn't really think that there was anything particularly special uh, about going and being a pastor. And I think people in our context are probably more uh, aligned with uh, where my parents were, were at, was at. A lot of people, and I I should say myself included, probably think being like a pastor or elder is nice, but it's not necessarily something that um, you think people should aspire to. And I have a couple guesses as to why that might be. You know, in the immigrant community, uh, immigrants are not given much honor in a worldly sense, right, from the world. Uh, My dad graduated from a pretty elite institution, university in uh, Korea. He studied economics. He had a a corporate job, but what happened was my grandfather had a stroke when he was in his 50s. My dad has five younger sisters. He was the oldest, and so it was up to him to now support the family, all right, and take care of all of his younger sisters. So what he decided to do is he's like, well, I can't make enough money here in Korea. I have to move to America. America in those days was like the land of opportunity where you could be successful and make enough money. So he moved, and uh, what he did was well, first thing he did, I think he got a job selling clothes, but he uh, knows, knows nothing about clothes, and he's a horrible salesperson because he's not very social, and he's a very stoic face. So he got fired from that first job, right? But then eventually he landed in a, like a grocery store business, and he learned the grocery store business, and that's what he did. He ran a grocery store, and I think that's very similar to like a lot of immigrant stories, right? You come to this new country, and uh, irrespective of uh, what you were like or the kind of training you had in that previous country, uh, you come here as an immigrant and you you don't get that much worldly honor for the kind of work that you do, even though it is honorable work. And so I I suspect that one of the ways um, folks in an immigrant context would actually receive honor and respect is through uh, honorable positions in the church. Uh, So I think that's why you know, people in an immigrant Korean church context, uh, like, you know, honor, well, there's also that, you know, honor culture, but 
uh, gave a lot of honor to these positions, and I'm sure that's probably why some people would aspire to it because it was had a lot of honor. I think in our context, uh, a lot of you probably get honor and status from I don't know your profession, maybe uh, from the uh, institutions, maybe you you graduated from uh, in this country, which means like you don't necessarily derive like honor from serving as an officer in the church. Uh, in other words, if you were to say to somebody, hey, I'm an elder or a deacon in my church, uh, I don't think most people in our context would say, wow, this person is like worthy of honor. And because of that, maybe that's why we don't really aspire to it, right? We don't really see like much importance or honor in it. I also think, uh, this is again, another guess. I also think the reputation of the church and maybe church leaders in particular uh, is not so great right now. Uh, I was reading a book and it was saying like there was surveys taken in terms of like the most trusted professions. Uh, do you know what the most trusted profession is uh, in, in our, according to that survey? Nurses. <laughs> nurses are the most trusted profession. 84% of people trust nurses. You know where pastors fall in that survey? Like 30 something percent, right? Pretty low societally. So uh, you know, in the news, there's been a lot, all kinds of scandal in churches and all kinds of denominations, like not just the right Protestant churches, but even if the Catholic churches. I think a lot of churches were maybe built on business principles, and a lot of churches, you know, grew on account of uh, implementing those principles and good branding and those kinds of things. And so when there was sin to be confronted, rather than doing the right thing, what ends up happening is you end up protecting and covering up that sin so that you protect the brand, you don't hurt the brand, rather than bring that sin to light. So why would anyone aspire to fill a church leadership role when so many people have such a low view of church leaders? Again, just a guess of mine. But when we look at this passage, according to Paul, he says we should aspire to it. Now why should we aspire to it? Not for the reasons why someone might aspire to something. It's, uh, it's not for the honor, uh, because if getting honor is the goal, then uh, ultimately what we do is we corrupt the office, and therefore uh, we should probably stay away from it. Um, but we should aspire to it because serving in this role is ultimately a noble task. But you can only see it as a noble task if you have a high view of the church, if you think the church is important and not a high view in the sense that, oh, the church is uh, glorious and the church is so good and the church is so influential and the church can help you get what you want. That's a worldly view of the church, but a high view of the church that comes from having a high view of God who made the weak, broken church his very instrument through which gospel ministry would be done. What task could be more I guess, nobler than that, even when that task is frustrating, even when that task is thankless, even when that task is empty of worldly honor and status, it's a task that we should desire if we have a high view of church because we have a high view of God. Unfortunately, when the reputation of the church is bad, it does end up hurting God's reputation too. It makes it that much harder to be uh, the bridge in connecting people to God through his gospel message. But that's why 1 Timothy 3 is so important because what it does is it gives us qualifications for the office of elder and deacon in order to not only protect the church, but to facilitate its work of gospel ministry. 
And this leads to the second point. If you look at the qualifications, it has uh, pretty much everything to do, with the exception of able to teach, it has everything to do with the character of the person rather than the giftedness of a person. Uh, just look at some of the qualifications of an elder. Elder should be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Then you look at the qualifications for a deacon. Dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, how many of those qualifications have to do with gifts? I think just one of them, able to teach. Everything else has to do with the character of a person. Now, I do think we are aware of how important character is, but still, I think we should also be aware of how hard it is to not emphasize the gifts of a person. I would even say in our very uh, little church, we might feel the temptation to look at gifts and overlook character. Why? It happens when uh, we reduce the church to a, maybe a set of tasks that have to be completed or maybe a list of problems that need to be solved. You know, when businesses hire people, they're hiring people for a particular task and therefore they need specific skills to fulfill those tasks. In the days when people uh, used resumes, I think, I don't know if people still use resumes. I think it's like all LinkedIn and all that stuff now, but uh, maybe people still use resumes. In those days, that's what people ultimately put on those resumes, right? They would say, well, look, I know how to use Excel, or I know how to generate content, or I know how to operationalize a process, or, you know, something to that effect. You're, you're talking about your skills. And... <coughs> I think I might get some pushback on this point from others, but I don't think the church is meant to be run like a business. Uh, I don't see any images in the Bible for a church resembling kind of like this well-oiled machine that can constantly grow and that can constantly scale up. I, when I read the Bible and the images for the church in the Bible, it has more to do with a body, something organic, or it has something to do with a household. And maybe that's why one of the qualifications for an elder and a deacon is how they manage their own households because how you manage your family has less to do with your gifts than it has to do with your character. When you are in a family, you don't get to choose the gifts that you bring to the table in your family. You have what you have and you use what you have to love and to serve your household. And likewise... I think the church is supposed to be more like a household, a family, uh, which is why Paul is more concerned about the character of a person rather than the gifts of a person. Now, I know we are uh, a small church, and uh, it feels like there's like need everywhere, right? We don't have enough people to do some of the things that we feel like need to be done. Uh, even so, I think it's important to just maintain the standard for the qualifications of the office, uh, some people have asked me, like, oh, so how many elders or deacons do we need? And uh, I don't like to think about it from that perspective because, again, it goes into that perspective of, like, like need-based, right? And therefore, we feel tempted to fill the role based on gifts rather than based on qualifications. So my answer for how many people should we call to these offices is usually uh, yeah, as many as God calls who are, who's qualified to fill these roles, to fill this office. We are drawn to gifts because gifts, if, you know, if we're honest, gifts produce results. 
GIFs get immediate results. Wouldn't it be great to have this like very charismatic leader who's really good at drawing a crowd, who could preach in a way that instantly penetrates the heart? I wish I could do that. And of course, it would be great to have someone like that because that person would yield immediate results, immediate fruit. They make it easier on everybody else. And uh, those gifts are good, and God gives people those gifts. But, you know, we've also seen uh, that when those kinds of leaders lack maturity and character, uh, it, can, it can cause a lot of damage and hurt in the church, right? And while we may not hear of uh, that kind of small group of church leaders who have high character, who love Jesus, and who love the church, uh, because they don't necessarily have the kind of gifts that uh, grow a church or make a church influential uh, on a, from a cultural standpoint, it will be a healthier household. And I think that's something that should be celebrated. I have, uh, over my lifetime, heard uh, way too many stories of like pastors and elders and church leaders uh, with big egos and little humility and who have uh, broken families um, who you know, are spiritually and emotionally abusive And I've heard too many stories of church leaders who lack gentleness and rather they are full of defensiveness. And, you know, how do they become leaders of the church? I think it's because they're gifted and they're successful in uh, whatever they do, whether it's like preaching or knowing how to build an institution or um, for lay lay, uh, officers, they know how to be successful in businesses and Uh, they're they're good at their careers or they seem smart or they seem like very confident and outspoken people. And so it's like, oh, they must be good leaders. Well, I think we would do well to always make sure we prioritize the character of a person over the giftedness of a person. And it may not solve uh, immediate problems, uh, but overall, that's what God desires of his church, which is why he gives us 1 Timothy 3. Finally, last point, let me say something about the qualifications. Uh, <clears throat> they are not impossible to reach. Uh, I think some people read these qualifications and uh, they interpret it as like uh, these qualifications are demanding per- perfection and who, who, could, who could meet these qualifications because like nobody's perfect. I don't think we should read it in that light. Um, you know, especially the household one, we're probably all like, oh man, that disqualifies me because, you know, I get mad at my kids, right? Uh, I, I don't think that's really what uh, it's talking about, like those uh, particular instances. Uh, they're not demanding a sinless person because only Jesus is without sin. I think we assume, uh, if we assume that these things are ultimately unattainable, then we won't take these qualifications as seriously as we should Uh, I think it would be like a man or a woman saying, you know, the kind of qualifications that I want for my future spouse is I want them to be good-looking and rich and athletic and musical and sociable and funny, good sense of humor and generous and smart and easygoing but independent and agreeable. And like you kind of list all these qualifications and you hear somebody do that and he's like, well, I don't know one person in the world in like who has these qualifications. And then you sort of don't take that person seriously because finding someone to meet those qualifications is virtually impossible. Uh, I don't think we should look at these qualifications as that and kind of saying like, well, it's impossible to meet these qualifications, so let's not take it seriously. 
I think find, finding <coughs> people who meet these qualifications should not be unattainable. And uh, my old professor used to say, uh, Paul is basically saying, this person should be a decent person. That's it. <laughs> should be a decent person. This person should have a good reputation and treat people well. This person should have some self-control so that they can maintain some dignity and respect in all kinds of situations, even if it's a stressful situation. Uh, this person should be good to all kinds of people, welcoming, not quarrelsome, not looking to pick a fight. This person should treat their family well. I don't think these things are meant to be an unattainable standard. Or if I could put it another way, we might say an officer of the church should be someone where you would have no problem saying, this isn't a person, this is a person I wouldn't mind my child looking to as kind of a role model for what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Okay? And again, it's not to say that elders or pastors or deacons are perfect, but it is saying that this person's life and faith are worthy of imitation, uh, just as Timothy imitated Paul and his life and faith. I think we should all care <coughs> who church officers are because we should all care about the health of the church. But I get it. Not everyone necessarily cares about such things. And it easy to get disillusioned with the church sometimes for a variety of reasons. Uh, I have to admit, sometimes I get tempted to be disillusioned. Now, I'm fortunate because I haven't experienced any kind of uh, scandal that oftentimes leads to disillusionment. Uh, I haven't experienced any kind of like major conflict or division, right? But still, I feel tempted to get disillusioned. Why? Well, we, we it feels like we are living through a season of decline uh, of the church in the West. A lot of churches are closing. Uh, I don't know if you know, but two of the Christian colleges in Manhattan, um, they announced they're closing this year. So King's College, they're closing. And Nyack, now called Alliance, they're closing as well as of this summer. Uh, sometimes, like in this kind of climate, uh, I wonder, nah, man, do people really care about Jesus and his gospel? Uh, sometimes I wonder, are the values of like consumerism just too ingrained in, in church ministry and like everybody kind of just w wants to go to church and like sit in a comfortable service and hear a, a good speaker and just kind of like, you know, serve me, serve me. And I'm talking about believers. I'm not talking about just like um, non-believers or people visiting churches or looking for churches. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes I go, oh man, like these values of consumer, like now the name of the game for like pastors is like who can, you know, build uh, bigger institutions and have bigger church budgets and get um, bigger butts, no, more butts in seats, right? Uh, not bigger butts, but more butts. <laughs> uh, right, and you, you kind of, right, you start to think about, like, all these negative things and, like, oh, man, do, do people love to worship and to pray? Do people just want to simply gather and, like, uh, sing to Jesus and pray to Jesus and delight in Jesus anymore? Or are we just all kind of like, I don't know, being formed by this heavily secular culture, um, very cynical, losing hope, uh, not thinking like there's, uh, there's life in the midst of all the bad news and there's a God who cares for us and there's a gospel message that uh, really has power to heal. Um, like, do, do we, 
as a church, do we believe things anymore? And sometimes I go, I, I, I don't know. And the temptation is to get disillusioned there and then just to kind of stop caring and say, eh, th- then the church is not going to really matter. Um, but here's what keeps me rooted in loving the church. And this is it. Jesus died for the church. That's it. If Jesus loved the church enough to die on a cross for her, then the church must be important to Jesus. And that is why I love the church. That is why I want to care for the church. It's not because the church is uh, good or worthy. Uh, It's not because the church necessarily gives me uh, something uh, that I want. It's simply this. I, I know with certainty Jesus loves the church. The church is his bride. He cares for her. And therefore, if the gospel means something to you, it can't just be uh, just mean something to you individually. It has an implication, and the implication is this. The church should mean something to you as well. Because if you love Christ, you've got to love his bride. Can you imagine, um, uh, I don't know, a married couple and... Um, I don't know if anybody here was like, it's probably the reverse. I think more people here like my wife more than I do. But let's say uh, somebody, somebody came here and was like, oh, Sam, um, I can't stand your wife. Well, I can't be friends with that person, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's kind of it's like a package deal, right? I think Jesus in the church <laughs> is similar. Jesus attached himself to his people, to his church as his bride, Uh, That's part and parcel of the gospel message. And therefore, if we love Jesus, we've got to love his church, got to care for it, got to care for its health. Let's pray. Uh, God, we are uh, in a season of the church where, um, you know, there's a lot of transitions happening. And um, for this particular congregation that you've uh, assembled and gathered together, um, uh, we do pray, God, that the, the next elders and deacons that you will call, that indeed you will call by your Spirit, that you would uh, not only give uh, conviction of heart uh, to serve um, from those who are nominated, but um, you, know, you would give a, a general aspiration uh, to serve in this office because it truly is a noble task. Um, you know, caring for your church and shepherding your church and serving your church and um, allowing and enabling uh, the gifts of your people to do uh, gospel ministry and to serve people and to serve New York is a noble task. And when we are all so busy and it seems like uh, our time is so limited, and a bunch of things are in competition with this noble task. Um, you know, sometimes we can lose sight. Of your church. Um, but help us not to do that. Not by focusing on your church, but help us not to do that by focusing more on Jesus. Help us to be captivated by his, his beauty and his glory. So much so that we would see... the the vehicle that you've uh, 
uh, declared out, out of your manifest wisdom of the church uh, to, to share and to spread this gospel and to minister with this gospel. Uh, help us to see um, uh, the importance of it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.